0: Welcome to yet another episode of the Reenactor's Corner. In this episode, Chris and I are going to talk about training events, how to host them, what content to have in them, where you need to have them, and training events in general.
1: Hey everybody! Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here today again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa?
0: Lassa here, and I'm doing just fine as always. What about you?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, it's Sunday evening. I had a great weekend, and uh, I'm happy to be able to talk to you. And I'm excited to be able to talk about our topic today, which is going to be um, training events for your reenactment group. Ideas for them. Uh, what is a training event? How to uh, set them up? What kind of things to train? So on and so forth. Las, I hear you coughing there. Have you? Have you? Do you have COVID nineteen? No. Okay, cool.
0: I hope not. I I do have two tests due tomorrow, so we'll find out.
1: All right. Uh, Yeah. Let me know if you're positive. Uh, Speaking of COVID news, one of my (laughs) one of my reenactor friends, uh, did get diagnosed this week with uh, COVID nineteen, and fortunately, Mm. uh, he's recovering well. but it's definitely a reminder that this, uh, this virus is out there right now. And uh, my friend who got it, it was very, very, very careful and very um, conscientious about all of the precautions that you could take. And he still got it. So, um, you know, I, we're, not, we're not out of the woods yet on this pandemic, I guess.
0: Not at all, sadly. Yeah. So, thankfully, none in my unit have been, um, have been testing positive yet.
1: Yeah, this was the first... Actually, yeah, this was the first one. It, the, he's the second um, local reenactor, or the, I guess the third local reenactor that I know who got it, but he is the first um, guy in my group who who has it.
0: He um, should get a medal.
1: I should give... I should award him a medal, the Kriegsviginstkreuz, perhaps, or something like that, uh, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <sighs> All right, so... Um, Let's just jump into this. Um, so, I have over the years coordinated or planned hosted training events for my reenactment group. And Lassa, I know that you're in your group, you have done the same.
0: Yeah, several times.
1: Um, so, I guess for people who are listening to this, who maybe aren't already reenactors, just so that you know what we're talking about here, there are different types of reenactment events. There are tactical events where you are in like a fake battle against the other side. And then there are public display events where the purpose is to show what you do in front of an audience of people who aren't reenactors. And then there are other types of events that um, are you could do it just with a few people or just with one unit. You don't need any kind of Um, enemy, you don't need other groups, and uh, an example of those type of events would be like an immersion event, which you could have an event where it's just you and the people in your group and you just spend a weekend pretending it's World War II and living life maybe in a quiet section of the front or in a rear area or what it is, and then there are training events, and training events are when you get together with guys from your reenactment group in your uniforms and there is somebody or a group of people that offer instruction and you do training in different skills that are important in reenacting or you practice things that you want to become proficient at so that you can do them at reenactments. And I think that these type of events are absolutely crucial for a reenactment group because there are certain skills that you can really only... Uh, get if you work together as a team, uh, an example for that would be like um, rifle drill, so the the precise maneuvers that you do with the rifle as part of certain types of formations and ceremonies. You can become very proficient at performing those movements, but uh, this is something that really has to be done as a team so if you 're practicing at home in a mirror and everybody in your group is practicing at home in a mirror. Um, then you go to do it in an event, and it turns out that everybody's been practicing at a slightly different speed or at a very different speed. Um, it can it can look very bad, and I think the only way to be able to do it together as a team is to practice together at a team, and that's an example of something that um, you can learn and teach during a training event. Uh, do you guys do rifle drill at your training events, Lassa?
0: We do uh, rifle drill and we do regular drill, and this is something we have a lot of emphasis on, and uh, we uh, consider it our speciality as well.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Um, why do you think it's important for a reenactment group to do drill like what the the military did in uh, World War II?
0: Well, um, it is that it builds... Um, unit discipline which is one part of it it's also one of the most um, common things any German soldier did during World War II as well and it is sort of what what gives the unit the military feel and appearance at events as well when everybody can just fall in uh, without any issues and do like the basic uh, maneuvers um, like that and for us it's also because we have very few tacticals so this is what we <laughs> specialize in
1: well I think that's great i think i agree with you uh, of course I think that learning drill is important um, for those reasons I also think that um, part of what we do as reenactors and this is kind of like a sort of a big picture thing. I think we carry on some of the traditions of the military units that we represent, not in like a really serious way, right? Um, and And I'm sure a lot of people out there would kind of bristle at the suggestion that they are carrying on traditions of like the Nazi military. But I think since we portray military organizations, there are traditions of these military organizations that we should... Sort of try to emulate, and one of those is definitely um, rifle drill or in regular drill uh, formations and that kind of thing. Because as you say, that was such a an important part of the training, almost not only of German soldiers but um, like all men, almost all military-aged men in the Third Reich. Because uh, even people who weren't in the military most of them were in some kind of paramilitary organization like the Reichsarbeitsdienst or they had been in the Sturmabteilung or whatever it was and uh and they did they did drill in those type of units as well so it was just a skill and an experience that they had that i think is uh is important for us to tr- it, at the very least to be aware of but ideally to be able to perform the way that they did it
0: yeah I agree with that uh, fully. And also, I would say that um, probably that uh, regular drill is more important than rifle drill and is where you should start as well as a group.
1: So just to clarify, when we're talking about regular drill here, you're talking about like forming up into formation, you know, being able to um, stand at attention, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and also marching. Uh, without yeah. a rifle and uh, doing uh turns while marching, etc
1: and that's a lot harder than it looks, isn't it i mean that's that is something that takes practice to be able to do in a way that it looks convincing I think
0: yeah, especially if you have uh three files um then it, the best thing is to basically take a very long broom and just haul it haul it in front of everybody and just uh, try to march in the curve because you still need to have a straight line. And, um, it's very hard to do. And I mean, German soldiers had like, depending on when on, when during the war, like two weeks of basic training and like, uh, 10, 11, 12 of those days would be constant, uh, drilling. So we just do it like for a few hours a, uh, a month basically. So it takes a lot of practice.
1: When you said that uh, it took a very large broom, I thought you were going to say that you used it to hit your guys.
0: Oh, no. Um, All right. Um, uh, I take it uh, as a mundane thing. Uh, It is, you hold the broom, like you have three files of men, and let's say you have, I don't know, ten men marching. You form them in three lines. Uh, So you have, how many will that be?
1: I'm not very good at math, Lasso.
0: No, but... Hmm. Never mind. <laughs> Three <laughs> lines of guys. And you hold the broom. The front guys hold the broom um, in their hands, basically. So it's, um, it's horizontal in front of them. And the thing is, holding onto that broom as you march and turn around helps a lot with holding the straight line at the front, which is so vital during drill. That's cool. And that's something you see in original training videos, too. Or even training videos of Modern armies that uh, the front guys will be holding a broom as they as they walk in circles basically and just to practice uh, practice the um, the uh, turning of the formation basically
1: that's cool yeah three marching in three rows like that was uh, the standard way that they marched you know mar- ordnung, as they say um, yeah, so that's definitely an important skill to be able to to replicate. Um, you know, I've seen some people, some people that I've talked to reenactors, they say, well, look, this stuff isn't important to know because late in World War II, they had ceased to do any of this training and, um, you know, it's, it's not important. And they were just shoving guys to the front without doing any of this kind of military formality stuff. And, um, although I think you could probably find some historical documentation for, I don't know, troops being sent to the front at the very end without having gone through this stuff. Um, I don't know. I think most most people probably did. I I think that the overwhelming vast majority of German soldiers did experience this kind of training. And even when I think back... Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: There was a guy who helped me learn how to do some of this stuff who had been in uh, the Battle of Berlin. He was in the Grossdeutschland... Panzer Corps in in 1945 or something like that, but uh, you know this this was a guy who was a, a veteran of World War Two and he had learned that stuff even when he was in the Hitler Jugend, um, and he still remembered it uh, seventy years later. So um, you know just because he he didn't join the army until very very close to the very end of the war when he was basically still a boy, he had gone through this training and he he learned it well enough that he could remember it for decades and decades. So. Um, you know, I do think, yeah, exactly. yeah, I don't, I don't, to me personally, um, that comes off often as kind of sounding like a sort of an excuse. I don't want to do this because it is, it, it can be hard to learn, you know, for people out there who haven't done this stuff. Um, it's harder than it, it's harder than it looks, even just marching in step for people who have never been in any kind of organization where they had to march in step, like the military or Uh, I don't know, marching band or something, right? It takes some practice to be able to do that um, together as a group. And for people who've never reenacted before, there's a lot of very specific little details that you have to remember, like which way that you have to turn when a certain command is given, like the command to turn around, you have to turn to the left, or like which foot to use when you start marching, things like that. These are things that you have to learn and memorize and you have to practice. Um, and in the reality of reenactment events, a lot of times you don't really have time to think about it. You're, you're standing in formation and the command is given, you know, turn, turn, turn to the left. Of course, these commands are given in German by reenactment groups um, and start marching. And, uh, you know, you've got to be able to do those you've got to be able to do those things right away. Um, so there's like, you know, a certain level of muscle memory that has to come into play. You have to have done this often enough that your, your body just kind of knows what to do without you really stopping and thinking, okay, um, you know, is does he say left? Like, what does that mean? Like you have to know. And, and it takes practice and training events I think are, are the, really training events are the only way, uh, certainly the best way to to learn these skills as a team
0: yeah certainly and um, it's very common to not know the difference between left and right and when you introduce like a foreign language on top of that it um, it does actually get pretty hard and a uh, well-planned training weekend can in my opinion be more exhaustive than a uh, a uh, well a field trip so to say
1: I totally agree. Um, It's funny that you say that it's common not to know the difference between left and right because everybody that I meet seems to have no problem knowing the difference between left and right, except for me. I can't do it. I'm 41 years old. I have never been able to know left or right. I have to think about it every time. (laughs) People give me directions. Like people, someone, I'll be driving my car and someone in the passenger seat will be like, take a left. And it's like, I need you to point, you know, just don't even bother saying left and right. Say, go that way, the other way. I'll look over. You point. I don't know. It's really embarrassing. That I I don't know why uh, my brain works the way that it does. But like left and right, I just can't. I can't do it. I can't do it in any language. I can't do it in English.
0: That's uh, actually funny. You'd, you'd struggle uh, at our
1: events. <laughs> well, uh, when I am in formation. So this is something that has I have learned to do from the time that I was. Basically, over the years of reenacting, this is a a survival skill that I have learned. When I am standing in formation, when we have been called into a formation, I am acutely aware the entire time of which hand is my left hand. I'm standing there. It's like, okay, what's my left hand? It's this. I'm like, this is my left hand. I know exactly where my left hand is. And then when the orders get given and it's left or right, I'm already thinking about it. It's already very present in my mind, you know, so I don't have to really think about it. But the moment I get in a formation, I'm like, all right left. I know where it's left. Okay, very good. Now let's do this.
0: <laughs> All right, maybe you could survive uh, an event with us.
1: <laughs> I'd love to do a training event with you guys. I love training events in general. They're some of my favorite reenactment events to do, because you can do them in a way that's that's pretty realistic. I mean, obviously, in, in the reality of like recruit training, you'd have you know, a massive number of guys being trained kind of all at once. You'd have a company of 100 guys and um, doing squad training 10 at a time, platoon training 30 guys, or, you know, squad training, three squads training at once. And, um, you know, my reenactment group is pretty small, so we might only have five guys at the training event. But training in the field was a reality for a lot of World War II soldiers. And, like, my unit portrays kind of a rear area Unit and I have seen uh, going through archives divisional level files from these kind of units again and again. There's emphasis on look, there should be there shouldn't be people who are just doing nothing all day. If there's nothing going on, there needs to be training. There needs to be um, formations. We need to maintain discipline. So, like the the units that uh, my unit portrays, the sometimes were widely scattered into small thinly manned outposts. So, um, you know, in, in those small thinly manned outposts, they were conducting field training. And so we can do something like that and it can be very, very realistic. And, um, we can schedule our day similar to the way that their day would have been scheduled, go over tasks that they would have known how, how to do and, and learn those. And it's, uh, it can be really immersive, you know. It can really kind of feel like, like time travel, especially if the training event is well planned, um, and and you're really busy. It's like, okay, we're going to be doing this activity at this time. It's scheduled uh, for you know one hour. One hour is up, and now it's time to do another activity, and then maybe it's time for a lunch break, and so on and so forth. And it it can feel, I think, like being a member of a military organization.
0: I agree and planning training events is actually one of the hardest events to be uh planning too the question is if you're gonna put up a schedule that's like so specific you have no room for variation but if you have no room for variation then uh people will get tired and they will get tired before you you realize it while you're setting up the schedule and that is i just find that difficult to balance out
1: i've had that problem too um I've done some training events that were scheduled where everything was perfect. You know, we did marksmanship training with uh, with reproduction World War II targets. And, um, and then there was like a competition, you know, a hand grenade throw competition. And everything was all scheduled out, and it worked. And then I've done other events where everything was all scheduled out, and it didn't work as well. You know, for example, maybe you um, scheduled an hour for marching, and then maybe... It turns out that everybody who showed up at the training event is actually pretty proficient in marching, so you've basically done all of the actual training that you need to do in the first 5 or 10 minutes of the hour, and then it's just one hour of marching around and everyone doing everything perfectly or, or close to perfectly, and, uh, and it can feel boring. Or and the other example is you have an hour for marching and you've got some new guys who have never done it before, and then at the end of the one hour... Um, you haven't really made as much progress as you wanted, and the guys are still pretty raw. But you've you've got to move on to the next thing because you've you've built that into the schedule. So, yeah, there's I think there's pros and cons to having a written schedule, and um, I kind of feel like this is kind of my gut feeling, and maybe you might even have had the opposite experience. But if I have a lot of people coming to a training event, like twenty, like my previous unit used to have some pretty well attended training events. Uh, I found that the schedules were usually pretty good, um, and sometimes were almost important in order to keep everything on track. Whereas if I'm doing a training event and there's only five people there, having a written schedule seems less important because you have so few people um, I th- that the flexibility can kind of be an advantage. You know? So you can kind of gauge where people are at and just do the training that is needed and uh, not too much, not too little. Yeah, I I agree. I
0: I agree with that. It um it is my experience as well.
1: So, besides rifle drill and marching, what other kind of stuff do you guys do at training events?
0: We always practice Hinlegen, the proper technique of Hinlegen, which is so characteristic and unique for German soldiers.
1: Yeah, that's impressive. Um, that's a skill that I think um the vast majority of reenactors don't know how to do, and in fact it's been a while since I have uh, practiced that as well um, the exact sequence of moves you know what goes down on the ground first as you go to lay down and stuff it you're right it is uh, it is very characteristic i think um, and it is very yeah specific. and since it's
0: so correct and since it's so characteristic, it is uh, even more important to do it in my opinion because when i'm out um with other units and I see them hitting the ground, which hindlegging means. It means uh, get down. Um the like I can like spot if they have practiced this or not, basically by looking at how they throw themselves down because most renactors haven't really practiced it that well. And that is also something else we take kind of um pride in in like everybody should know that specific um uh, how to do it so uh, when we reenact uh, you know regular tacticals or whatever people will throw themselves down in a proper way if you are in the middle of the woods and there's lots of underbrush and stuff it's not necessarily the most optimal way of doing it but it is that if you have done it enough it becomes a muscle memory and you do something uh, close to it and it's just stuff like that you will uh, notice on reenactors and that also comes back to like regular drill as well, because if you do it enough, it becomes regular muscle memory. So when people relax, they will sort of stand relaxed in a different way that you see more common in original photos as well.
1: Absolutely. You know, what, what foot goes forward and how you stand, this stuff, this is stuff that uh, that you kind of learn and that if you practice it enough, like you say, absolutely becomes muscle memory. I, uh, the guy, the German World War II veteran that I mentioned earlier, who helped me to learn how to do some of the drill commands, uh, he told me that um, so the commands to turn around when you're standing in formation, you turn to the left. And he told me that for his entire life after his military time, which uh, only was a few months of his life, Uh, If someone tapped him on the shoulder for him to turn around, he would always turn around to the left every time because in his mind, turn around meant I turn to the left.
0: And it's also that, um, I don't know if you have seen it probably, uh, you know when uh, you are supposed to uh, stand at attention or at ease with your rifle uh, on the ground, you hold it by the upper barrel band with your right hand, sort of with like the the four... uh, fingers uh, apart from the thumb in front of the rifle and it sort of leaned towards you and if you look at a lot of original photos where German soldiers are standing still uh, relaxed with the rifle next to the right foot they will be holding it as if they are at attention or at ease just not as rigid but it's just muscle memory and that's something I see our guys are starting to do because of that muscle memory and it just gives it that like the devil is
1: in the details to me that's what makes an elite reenactor you know to me that that kind of stuff to me um i notice that stuff a lot more than um who made somebody's jacket or these microscopic details of um you know material culture stuff or whether or not the buttons are original these things i don't notice but if somebody knows these Things If someone knows the behaviors, you know, if someone has learned the mannerisms of the people, that to me is what is impressive. Yeah. And training events are a big part of that. That to me is part of why being in a unit is so important in World War II reenacting. Because if you only ever attend events by yourself, or if you attend events using just like unit-specific kit guidelines and you never are actually a part of a team that trains and learns these skills, you're probably never going to learn them because it's it's not really something that you can learn by yourself. You can't learn how to correctly march by yourself because the soldiers weren't marching one at a time. You're marching as part of a team, and that's its own thing. It's its own skill that you have to practice to learn.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: since and we're talking about drill, Lassa, what were yeah. the resources that you guys used to learn how to do it. Because it's not its not super easy to figure out how to do this stuff correctly.
0: No, this is actually very uh, difficult. And the more we've researched it, the more we've found that there's literally no guides online from any reenactment group that is correct. Every group that we've seen on YouTube or on forums or on their unit's website or whatever has one at least one flaw in their inner marching and our uh, resources have been the original uh, book on uh, drill as well as a lot of uh, a lot of uh, footage original footage that has been very hard to find because uh, propaganda reels never show um, military units uh, turning around for example they just show them marching so it's been very difficult that we had to look like at uh, home footage from civilians uh, filming a parade and stuff like that.
1: Wow, that sounds like a great resource. Um, I would love it if you guys could put something together about what you would have found, you know, and compare it to how we do it. Because um, the way the way we do it comes also from original manuals, the manual Exercieren und Kommandieren," and then the yeah. Rybert training manuals as well. Um, and then uh, I was able to find a very small amount of original footage, just a couple of clips, which were really kind of tantalizing because the clips seemed to be showing stuff that seemed to be, in some cases, you know, different from what was shown in the Exercieren and Kommandeeren manual. Um,
0: yeah, the thing seems uh, to us, having researched this for a few years now, basically, is that Um, The Exeterian book is actually very badly written, and it lacks Mm. a lot of key details, and it seems to also be uh, very easily misunderstood, especially when you start uh, talking about um, Americans who have served in their military, because American uh, modern drill is very different from even uh, modern European drill, and it seems to just be a crash there. Uh, My unit co-commander, nicholas he had been serving in the Norwegian military for four or five years, um, and he had been training new guys up in drill his entire career. Uh, So he got the order to learn the exercise book, like really study it. And he said that he thought he would have use of Norwegian drill when he read it, but it was just like to throw it just right out a window because it's so different and he said that the more he reread the book cover to cover the more small details he found out and he would often just uh, have me and a few friends over and just like walk us through it like step by step because a lot of the book is stuff you have to like just read out loud and get people to do to like understand what the book is actually saying
1: To me, looking at that manual and the others that are like it, it's very obvious that they're basically assuming that this manual is just kind of to sort of like assist with or augment your training from this military trainer who was going to be teaching you exactly. how to do this, who was taught himself when he was a recruit by other trainers. So there's this kind of built-in assumption of institutional knowledge and memory. None of this stuff is written for people who are starting from scratch. You know, it's It assumes that there's somebody reading that who learned how to do it the right way to begin with, and then, you know what I mean?
0: Exactly. And that is a very um, big flaw of the book.
1: They weren't thinking of reenactors when they wrote it, certainly.
0: Oh, it sucks. should sue them.
1: <laughs> I'll file a complaint. When, <laughs> when I started reenacting, I learned how to do rifle drill and marching from people in my unit, trainers who were experienced reenactors in my group. And that stuff came from a, a bunch of different sources. But um, there was definitely stuff that I learned when I was a new reenactor uh, that was modern U.S. Mili- that was influenced by modern U.S. military and how the modern U.S. military does things, and these were things that I later had to unlearn later on when we collectively as a group came to realize what we were doing wrong. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing how stuff like that errors can slip in sort of unnoticed um, or just based on a guess that turns out to be a wrong guess. You know, it really is a challenge to to figure out how to do it the exact way that they did it.
0: Yeah. And, um, I mean, many reenactment units base their uh, drills off of, for example, their Erste Zug's um, drilling uh, guides on their websites and also a few videos on youtube which i can't remember the specific uh, unit who makes them but it's like all of those have like these small details that are just wrong which makes the entire uh drill
1: wrong basically and Mm. i think it sucks it's interesting because um you know i'm i can't present myself as a total expert on drill, and it's certainly possible that the way that my unit does it has mistakes. In fact, I think it's probably more likely than not that there's stuff that we do where, if uh, you know, some Wehrmacht drill sergeant could come back from the dead and uh, see what we were doing, he'd be horrified. Uh, I'm sure there's room for improvement there. It's definitely, uh, yeah. Like I say, there have been when I started, we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, over time, I've I've unlearned a lot of bad behaviors, but I'm sure there's still stuff in there. You know, I'm sure there's still problems because, like you say, the the existing sources require, there's there's some interpretation there, and some of those interpretations could certainly be wrong.
0: Yeah, and the way it's written, it's also helpful to, like, read it out very loud and just try it step-by-step step with several order guys.
1: That's cool. It's and good, just, good that tip. is
0: kind of difficult, too, because when you have several order guys, you just want to practice drilling instead of, like, reading out a manual out loud?
1: Well, I'll tell you from, from experience, um, when you're putting yourself out there as the person who is conducting drill in a training setting, it's pretty important that you can project that you know what you're doing. Um, because if you don't know what you're doing... Then the people that you're trying to train are going to pick up on that, and they are going to lose confidence in you and it's going to affect whether or not you're going to be able to effectively train these people to do this you know you certainly can't exactly you can't tell people to do the same thing different ways you know and and that's stuff that can happen and uh you know so so yeah if if you're if you're trying to do the training you've got to make sure that this is something that that you have put in the time to really learn and to do it right. Or at Um, the very least to be confident in what you're doing, whether you're doing it right or not, almost.
0: Also, one specific part about drilling that I see many units do, both in Europe and in the States, is uh, for the dismissed order. Yeah. Um, It seems that it's common to turn around or turn to the left and take two steps before you are dismissed at the dismiss order. Uh, do you do your unit do this, or have you seen it?
1: Yeah, I do. I, do, uh, I give a command where I basically say, uh, Nach hinten, wegtreten. And so the command tells them to turn around, and they're dismissed to the rear, the way that I do it. And um, it's interesting that you say that because I was just watching the 1993 film Stalingrad the other day and uh, there's a I would I would never tell people to use a post-war movie as a a resource right but I couldn't help but notice that there's a formation in the beginning of that movie and when the command Wegtreten is given everyone just takes a step forward you know so um, yeah I was definitely thinking about that and wondering what was the real way that they did that.
0: Yeah. Um according to the big manual and other uh sources we've seen and also these whole movie clips that we've noticed, is that when the order for dismissed is sounded, you are dismissed on the spot without a necessary to you, you don't have to do anything, you're you're dismissed. You can mm. take up a cigarette or just walk away or anything. Uh, but what was most common by German um uh, commanders was to give them a direction in which to dismiss. Cool. Be it to the left, to the right, to the front, to the rear, or more common, um, towards the mess hall uh, dismissed, or towards the truck dismissed, or stuff like that. That's cool. that was the most common way of doing it. But if you just say threaten," which is the order, um, everybody can just do what they want. They're dismissed.
1: I got to look again in, uh, that exocere and commandeer and manual. Cause I feel like I've seen veg, and veg, Um, I don't know. I should look at that again.
0: Yeah, maybe correct. Yeah. And you know, I went uh, at a training event for months, so I'm rusty as well on this.
1: I am hyper rusty on this stuff. I have definitely lost some degree of proficiency that I once had in doing this stuff. And, uh, yeah, that kind of shows the value of a training event too, not just for um, tr- teaching these skills, but the people who are going to be in charge in the field at the tactical events, those people need th- to be at the training event so that they can practice um, giving the commands and knowing what is the right command to give and you know stuff like that. thats It's very important for everybody in a group, the leadership as well, everybody.
0: Totally. Now, when it if we like go back to the discussion of training events and how to host them, um, what we usually do at our events is that we have everybody meet up on uh, Friday evening and afternoon. And then we start at 06.30 usually every day by waking up. And then we have the first formation at 07.00 with some morning drill like morning um, uh, PT, basically. And then we have 30 minutes more for breakfast before we start uh, practicing drilling, which we will do for like 75% of the entire training event. And in between here and there, we will have other lessons as we talked about uh, grenade throwing, rifle drills, which is more drilling, basically. Um and also we'll practice inspections, Hinlegen, uh putting up Zeltbonds is also a good one. And like lots of different stuff like that. And we will have lunch at like eleven or twelve and then we will have a dinner at like five or six and when the darkness settles, we will go in to have indoor lessons where we will basically practice the structure of the Wehrmacht, different ranks, um, theory of different stuff. Uh, We'll also do sometimes like vehicle uh, uh, vehicle, uh, what do you call it, identification and maybe a history lesson on some specific division and stuff like that. And then people have a few hours free to do whatever they want at like nine o'clock then it's up again at oh six thirty maybe we'll have an alarm through the night who knows the alarm will basically be to get in gear and and get information and then just go back to bed again it's totally useless but everybody hates it so it's fun and then we'll do more drilling through sunday And we'll usually wrap it up at around 1 or 2 o'clock. And that's the entire event.
1: Sounds awesome. Sounds like a really rigorous training schedule. And uh, sounds like a really efficient way to use your time.
0: Yeah, it's been like that for the past years, basically. We're trying to uh, have a few other classes, too. Like maybe mine laying or like anti-tank stuff and stuff like that just to just to have some different stuff, but we'll all always do like drilling for 75% of the time.
1: Sure. It's the same with our training events, learning the basic skills, um, r- drill, rifle drill, marching, these things um, take up probably the bulk of the time. And then uh, we'll do some squad formation, sort of squad tactics stuff, and then kind of specialized training that depends on, um, you know, that kind of is different all the time. So in, I, things that we've done at some events in the past, we've done training on booby traps, how to set them up, how to detect them using uh, period manuals as as a source. Um, we also did, uh, in my previous group, I remember one training event in particular where we set up an alarm on Laga from an original manual. So this is basically a an area where... Um, if somebody tries to enter this area, it's basically a series of interconnected trip wires that cover the ground and that are connected to sort of like listening devices at listening posts. So um it's basically the the listening device is basically a, a can, a small food can within a larger food can that's set that's connected to wires that are under tension, that are connected to all the other staked down wires that are part of this network of trip wires. So if somebody disturbs that wire, it makes a noise in those in those cans. So just you know, specific things like that that you can learn how to do. Um, and of course, there are endless, endless things like that. Like looking at original manuals that show you how to build field positions, how to build dummy field positions that look like real field positions from the air, um, you know, and, and and like you said, also doing some historical stuff specifically for those units that portray a specific, uh, you know, for those reenactment groups that portray a specific military unit all the time, training events can be a good way to make sure everybody knows, you know, about the actual unit that is being represented. Another thing that we'll do sometimes at training events is we'll pick a common marching song from the time and then have everybody learn it together. And uh, I find that learning, when we've done this before, where we've learned a song together as a group, later on down the road, more people remember it than, than don't remember it. Whereas just asking people to learn that song at home has not had as much success.
0: Yeah, learning a song is also something we occasionally do.
1: Nice. Uh, Another
0: point? one we also do is um, uh, field phone communication stuff, like laying the cable and connecting them properly and stuff like that.
1: How to use the field phones is a really good skill. It's definitely a really valuable skill for a reenactor to have. Um, yeah, there are so many them. field telephones still out there, and they're not very expensive or hard to get. Um, so it's an asset that pr- any basically any reenactment group of any size can have and and use this uh really cool asset that can be really handy for certain types of events
0: absolutely now we use ours um like almost every event so it's very relevant for everybody to know them
1: now where where you are in the world Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but they used German field phones, right? Like the Norwegian military used World War II German field phones after uh, World War II, or am I thinking about somewhere else?
0: No, the Norwegian military used them up until, I believe, the uh, late 60s or early 70s when the American uh, wireless started coming out uh, in big numbers.
1: So the, the phones probably are even more common there, right?
0: Yeah, the phones are very common. Uh, All bite with a uh, um, on on the top cover of those phones. You have like a plate with um, like the German phonetic alphabet, and that has been replaced with the NATO phonetic uh, alphabet that the Norwegians used. So apart from that, they are basically untouched um, by by the Norwegian military. So we can find them for in like good condition for like thirty dollars per piece. That's awesome. Uh, but um although the Norwegian military stopped using them, the uh, actually the Norwegian railways used them up until the mid 2000s because it's a extremely uh simple system on a train because if the train would um stop working before like um cell phones were common especially had good enough reception where where trains went up on the mountains and down in the deepest valleys, uh, they could uh, take out one of these field phones and just hook it up to the railway themselves, like the um, like the tracks, and they could communicate on an emergency system with the closest station.
1: That's really cool. They're significantly, I think, more expensive here. I used to pay you know maybe eighty dollars for them, but even those prices are a thing of the past. But they're still um, around. Um, of course I, I have a lot of field phones, but I'm kind of hesitant to take them out to reenactments most of the time because they're original things and if parts break I have to buy another phone to replace the parts. Um so uh but we do use them sometimes.
0: Yeah, we're we're basically drowning in them. The leather letter slings we use, which we get from uh Active Front or reenactment store are actually almost as expensive as the phones themselves.
1: Yeah, and I would tell you that you should, you, know, you could sell those phones for more money, right? You could sell them to uh, reenactors or collectors in the United States, but those phones are heavy and expensive to ship.
0: Yeah, did I did actually talk to a reenactor in the States to ship over like a few of them, and we figured out that before it started getting um, economically uh, good, uh, I would need to ship like six of them at a time. Because they are really heavy. And we have so much fun lugging those arounds in the wood.
1: <laughs> Some of the most fun training events that I've uh, done have had like the marksmanship training component where we used uh, – this was in the unit that I was in before. That one of the uh, people in charge had figured out how to reproduce the types of targets that were used uh, for training. Uh, in the Wehrmacht. And he had done research on how the training was conducted and how the scoring was done. And then we would, um, you know, we would do that stuff. And it was really kind of eye-opening for people to actually learn how skilled they were or weren't, you know, with, with marksmanship. Because I think in tacticals right there are people who maybe don't actually get to shoot the weapons very often and it may never have trained on you know fi- firing a k98 live and don't necessarily realize that uh, you know actually hitting a target that is small or that's distant takes some skill you know and if you don't have that skill if you haven't trained on that stuff it might be harder than you think to to hit what you're shooting at you know what I mean
0: Absolutely. Now, I wish we could have like a live uh, gun range as well during uh, training events, but um, on the location where we had a training event, that has been impossible, sadly.
1: So much of what you can do at a training event is going to be determined by what property you're using. You know, um, it would be awesome if we could use a uh, German barracks that had a, a barracks parade ground out in front. Um, but that's never going to happen for us. So, um, you know, if we have and an for indoor us, space. that's where we do it. Yeah, that's, I'm super jealous about that. That's a really cool uh, thing you guys get to do. You get that European. But proof, I
0: mean, it. you could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's something else doing it on the actual parade grounds because parade grounds are made for it, not just um, that it's flat and level, but it's also the acoustics of it. Because a command is supposed to be very noisy and you're supposed to hear all the heel clacking, basically. Like the entire yeah. the entire place is made acoustically for that. And there's something else doing it there than, for example, on a road or, or in the woods.
1: Yeah, very often when we do our training events, uh, the only place where we can do the marching practice is in a grassy field. And that it, you were at such a disadvantage doing it that way because you lose that you lose those audio cues you know am I marching in step if you're marching through grass that muffles your footfalls you know it's so different from uh, you can you can hear a, a unit that's marching on a pa- on pavement or on gravel you know you can hear that they're marching in step or or at least that they're stepping down at the same time or even if it's the wrong foot whereas if if you're marching in grass it becomes uh it becomes so much harder to find the little mistakes that you're trying to to correct or to prevent
0: yeah i'd say it's a problem but like there's nothing wrong with having a training event on a field either it's just that since we started the unit we have been rather um privileged with our locations basically but then again we couldn't have a uh, live gun range at any time
1: Mm. the training event that we used to do we've done a couple of them at uh different like gun ranges we did one at a a gun club in in the unit that i used to be in and then another site that we used to use was like a big sand or gravel pit behind a gun store and uh we could do like whatever (laughs) we wanted in those places it was really cool especially the gravel pit behind the gun store. That guy was uh, more than happy to let us just do basically anything we wanted to out there, which was really cool.
0: That's cool.
1: But even if you only had a very small area, you could still do training on a variety of skills, like what you mentioned, like setting up the Zeltbahn tents, you know, or, uh, you know, even just, I mean, depending on what the the experience level is of the reenactors involved, Um, just something like preparing a simple meal or, you know, if you've got, um, people who are like really new to reenacting and and haven't done anything like this before, even just how to start a fire that like how to, how to lay, you know, sticks to create, to get a fire started. I mean, it's, these are things that I take for granted, but, um, you know, I've seen I've I've seen lots of reenactors get into this hobby and learn these very simple things for the first time, how to use a can opener. You know.
0: You know, the first time I saw Ben using a can opener, I had to just look on with fascination on what he was doing with the can opener because it was all kinds of wrong.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've. You know, I have done things like that, uh, myself, um, trying to remember, I know there was, you know, sometimes you just think, you know, how to do something and then, uh, you know, you don't, I mean, even like pulling a wine bottle out of a, pulling a wine cork out of a wine bottle, you know, it's, uh, if, if you've done it, you've done it, but if you've never done it, it's, it's not necessarily super obvious how you're supposed to do that.
0: Yeah, exactly. See so yeah, just like mundane stuff like that can work as well in a limited space, then you don't even need to go outside you can do it in in a room basically at someone's home
1: that is something that you certainly could do i've when I first got started in reenacting we did uh we would have some amount of training that would take place inside our unit commanders like living room you know right inside his house um and it was better than no training. we used to do Training events where we would do, we would have a big event coming up that we were really excited about. We'd have a lot of people going. Maybe we'd have thirty guys going to this one tactical, and two weeks before or three weeks before, we would have a training event in advance of that big event so that everyone could uh, make sure that they refreshed their skills. And that stuff really paid dividends at the event. You know, it was definitely worth doing that for us.
0: I can't imagine because
1: it's Absolutely. super embarrassing if you're standing in formation in front of everybody else at the event if there's some kind of unit wide formation and you give the command to turn left and half of the guys turn left and then some of the guys turn right and some of the guys turn around and some of the guys don't move and then everybody sees that someone else did something different and now they're they're thinking they didn't do the right thing so everyone's turning around like uh, spinning around in place it's like it can be really really ugly sure it certainly yeah. doesn't look professional when that happens, and uh, I hope I never experience that again. <laughs> so I guess you know my my message to people out there. Basically, the bottom line is, um, you know, if you've got some guys that want to reenact and you've got access to some area that's relatively private where you can kind of do your thing, and uh, you're looking for something to do, getting together to learn skills is. Always a good use of time. And and also, um, one of the advantages of being in a reenactment group is you might have one person who's really knowledgeable about uh, field phones, right? And you might have another person who's really knowledgeable about um, some unit history aspects and another person who's really knowledgeable about some something else that's specific, like h- how to use or throw hand grenades or s- setting landmines. And all of those people can teach everybody else their own specialty and it just advances um everybody else's knowledge and skill level so much it's so so helpful i think
0: absolutely as a guy who had been uh, hosting several training events it's so important to reach out to others in the unit and just uh, ask them if they are willing to uh, prepare a lesson in their speciality for the training event and that puts stress away away from me as well, so I can focus on the entire uh, event and my lessons, so to say, and the other ones can focus on their specialities.
1: We've done a few uh, multi-unit training events over the years where German units, different uh, local German units, would all come together and practice and uh, teach each other, and I have just found those to be so fun. I would love to do more stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I've, I've actually forgotten those, but I've done a few with like the Swedish and the Danish groups as well. Um, and they've always been great fun because then the the Swedish group will do their speciality and we will do our specialty and the Danish group will do their speciality. And it's just so much knowledge and experience going around that it's amazing.
1: I would absolutely love someday to do an event like that on a large scale, you know, with 100 people um, at a sp- at a site that was big enough, maybe something with a barracks type building or something like that. I think that would be so I think that would feel so real. I would love to do that.
0: Yeah. We did one uh, with the Swedish and the Danish group in Sweden and there um half of the guys slept in a barn and the other half slept in a very small uh bunker like the one you've made recently. Uh, but then we That's just awesome. went out and had so much fun. We practiced like uh, the Panzerfaust and we even had a soccer game. It was great fun.
1: I would, If I had to travel a long distance to do an event, I would rather do an event like that than do, do a battle even. That's the reality. That, sounds, that really appeals to me very much.
0: Well, you're always invited.
1: Well, maybe someday. Maybe someday. I don't know if I could travel <laughs> that far. But, you know, if, this, uh, if the travel restrictions from the pandemic ever end, uh, maybe I'll find a way to do it.
0: Oh, we just need a few more patrons. Tint, tint.
1: <laughs> Nice. All right, Lessa. uh <laughs> I think we're, that's all the time we've got for today. Um, I've really enjoyed talking about this with you. And uh, to the listeners out there, if you have uh, done training events successfully or if you just have ideas about training events, I'd love to hear about it so you can get in touch with me and uh, let me know what your thoughts are on this kind of thing. I am sure. I feel like we just scratched the surface. I think we could probably talk about this for another hour if we wanted to. Yeah.
0: Easily. To listeners, just leave a comment. And, yeah, <laughs> just leave a comment.
1: Yeah. All right, uh, Lhasa and everybody, um, stay safe out there, and I'll see you in the field.
0: I'll see you in the field. Don't forget to use our 7% discount code off of, of uh, FEDA at german-worldwar2.com. And if you buy something there and you go to the checkout and you use the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, you will get a very nice discount.
1: Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, aka Retro Man, for editing this podcast.